BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Monday, January 8th, 2024. Alistair Crook joins us now. Alistair, always a pleasure, my dear friend. Welcome back uh, to the show. You have a very uh, interesting piece. It's either out now or it's about to come out, uh, arguing about the attitude that the West has uh, towards the rest of the world and how that attitude will largely be uh, its undoing. Does the West, by and large, believe that it is exceptional? Does the West think it is morally superior to, let's say, the Russians? No. This is the problem. I think that we've come to the conclusion very clearly that that period where, you know, the vision of the West, which has been a long-running one of sort of our superiority, our inherent superiority, as I put it, from um, Plato to NATO, um, is no longer believed by the rest of the world. They no longer believe that we have some special qualities, that our culture is unique and suitable for everyone. And this is why I think we're sort of uh, desperate because, of course, our hegemony has been built on this myth. Our hegemony, and I'm afraid to say also our colonial world, was based on the idea that somehow the West had an innate superiority about how to do things, about technology, and about its culture. And that has come to an end, or is fading. And we can feel it. We're past that. It's going. I mean, this is what the multipolar world is all about. And why people say, you know, we don't want to, you know, we just don't want to necessarily do things the way the West does. So that's gone. Yes, it's gone. You're getting a lot of uh, kudos uh, from the people watching us now who uh, who write in their thoughts from Plato to NATO. That's genius. So it's a very uh, catchy line. And of course, it's more than just a line that rhymes. Uh, it encapsulates the view that you're trying to uh, articulate. Uh, I mean, for years, the United States had this motto of manifest destiny. We bought yeah. land from the French and we seized it from the Spaniards and we uh, seized it from the uh, Native Americans because we were white, we were Western, we were Christian. Um, we had the right uh, to dominate. Do the elites, I guess they do, Alistair, do the elites still believe that? No. Uh, the, and uh, consequently, this is the cause of their fear. Uh, they're very frightened because of the whole of the structure of the <clears throat> rules-based order is based on basically 
Western philosophy, Western ideology, Western financial systems, and Western idea of democracy. And so it's all been based on that. And this is why I think there's been such fear about what was happening in Russia and what has been happening in Ukraine, the sense that everything could come down, that the whole, the whole structure, the whole, if you like, um, the whole paradigm uh, could start to fragment and break up, and we'd no longer be able to maintain our sort of um, uh, privileged position in the world, as Putin calls it, our exorbitant privilege any longer, once the world stops believing that somehow the Western way is the only way. You know, the end of time, Fukuyama's um, book about how everything was going to converge on Western liberalism. Well, no one believes that now. It's gone, and people are very narrow, narrow, <coughs> are very frightened by that. And this is why they come up with these narratives to try and keep that sort of hegemony aloft, to keep it going somehow in the future. And so they want to produce these narratives about how the West is always winning, that the West has the winning narrative, that it has the one that everyone wants. Um, but of course, uh, sometimes facts, like in Ukraine, like what's happening in Israel, actually just overthrow completely uh, that narrative. They're just unsustainable because after a time, you know, uh, facts on the ground, facts on the battlefield, facts from videos and from um, alternative media uh, show that this is totally wrong. But uh, we've been stuck with the idea of having one narrative, a winning narrative, and everyone else having a clunky narrative and not a, such a good narrative. And that's what we hope will sort of substitute for this fading of Western culture, fading of the Western idea fading of the Western vision. So, so is the uh, neocon um, a disaster in Ukraine one last gasp to extend uh, Western ideology and bloody the Russian nose? Well, it was, yes, it was that. It was very much about it. I mean, you remember people were saying uh, at the outset of the war, you know, if Russia wins this war, the West is finished, we're over, it's done with. So, yes, it was sought to be an easy win that um, particularly the financial sanctions, the sanctions on Russia, you remember the French finance minister was crowing at the time that this would collapse Russia within weeks or days, he said, you know, the and that the ruble would be, this was... Biden's word would be rubble and that it would collapse and that then it would be easy for Ukraine to have a have have a victory and that then the Western narrative would be sustained, reinforced. The Western narrative of being a winner would be reinforced and improved. Uh, so they stuck to this. The only problem is that trying to enforce those narratives, trying to keep to those narratives, it means either you have to turn everyone else's into a sort of Manichaean, like Putin, you know, the figure of hate, the figure of Satan, whatever else, which has the disadvantage of two things. One, you never hear what they're saying. We don't listen anymore to anyone else because we're so intent on keeping our narratives 
at the forefront of everyone's thoughts that we don't listen to what Russia, what China, what Iran is saying anymore. We have no empathy. We have no ability to understand what's going on or what they're thinking because we insist on our narrative and we exclude the narrative uh, of anyone else. It's finished. No, that's all lies. Statistically, the Russian economy is in better shape now uh, than uh, before the sanctions were imposed, notwithstanding the enormous expense uh, of the special military operation uh, in Ukraine. Um, statistically, we all know that the Ukraine war is virtually over, even though the uh, Congress of the United States is making noises now that if Joe Biden goes along uh, with certain domestic issues having to do with uh, immigration uh, and, and a wall uh, to retard the flow of immigrants in the Southwest, uh, that the Congress may come up with another 60 or 70 billion for Ukraine. Um, do the elites, do the neocons still see a glimmer of hope that they can pull this rabbit out of a hat? Or do even they recognize that Ukraine is over, that it was a disaster, that the values behind it, which you've just been uh, critically uh, describing, uh, no longer subsist, and it's time to turn to focus their attention elsewhere? Uh, yes, they recognize. I'm I, I'm certain of that now. They recognize this war is over, and what's more, they don't believe that it can be resumed. Um, and all we're doing now and all we're seeing is ways of trying to create a narrative that the West has won. Again, that the West has won because Putin has failed. He didn't take Kiev. He didn't capture the whole country. And they impute that as a fact that this is what Putin was um, seeking. Whereas we know very clearly and was later demonstrated that what he was doing when the troops went near Kiev was to try and sort of push people towards a negotiation. And then the negotiation happened, if you remember, in March um, of last year, the previous year. And of course, Britain and America told Zelensky and Kiev Forget it. Just keep the war going. So they want to, if you like, let down, find a narrative that says we still won. But it's not going to work because Russia isn't going to play with that narrative. It's not going to negotiate the stalemate as they hope. Um, Russia will negotiate, yes. But only one thing. They want capitulation. They expect capitulation and the removal of, if you like, the, the neo-Nazi elements from, from the regime. So I, it's, not going, it's not going to happen, but they're still scrabbling around. And they can't go on long because what they are resorting to now is simply firing long-range missiles into civil Russia, into civilian cities of Russia. And, you know, there's no... I mean, this isn't a military operation any longer. This is terrorism. And uh, even the United States is not going to be able to go on very long with just simply firing lots of rockets into Belograd in, in Russia uh, and to killing lots of civilians going out doing their Christmas shopping. So I don't think it can last. How dangerous uh, is it for world stability uh, that the uh, munitions being fired at Russian civilians were manufactured in the United States? 
Well, probably the ones, the last ones were manufactured in the Czech Republic, but uh, it's, it's, you know, it's the same thing that we're seeing in Gaza. Uh, it makes one complicit. And Gaza is providing a, a shining, uh, a very clear light on the whole of the war on Ukraine. Um, the attacks now by Ukraine are on civilians living in Russia, inside 91 Russia. I mean, nothing to do with um, the Ukraine um, attacking civilians, causing many deaths. I mean, is unacceptable. It is a war crime. And the states that are supplying the long-range missiles for that, therefore, are complicit in a war crime against uh, Russia. Um, and, you know, Ukraine is making this point very clearly. And the recent ICW action about genocide also underlines the point about um, criminal action against a collective population. Um, at the risk of drawing you into domestic American politics, which I don't, I don't want to do, but I have to ask you this. What, what will the neocons uh, and the Biden administration claim as their off-ramp? Will they say something like, oh, it's a stalemate. He didn't get Kiev. He didn't go as far west as he wanted. I mean, what can they say uh, to make themselves save face? Uh, that's all. I mean, the lines on the on the front are, are uh, the, um, the Ukrainians have gone into complete defensive posture, and Russia is attacking everywhere, strongly, accelerating fashion across all the lines, uh, and it's it's also mounting uh, a reaction to these attacks on its civilian population across Kiev and and across Ukraine with masses of missiles. Uh, and drones, but focused on military targets, on uh, air defenses, on, on factories, not on civilian populations. Why do nation states talk past each other, or why do they not even talk to each other anymore? Why is it that Minister, Foreign Minister Lavrov and Secretary of State Blinken don't pick up the phone and speak with each other? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Well, because of this insistence in the West in this period that we've got to have, we have the winning and we've got to find and we've got to stick with the winning narrative. And it's got to be from top to bottom of our society. And mass media is to enforce it and to denigrate anyone that tries to step out of line 
with that single mantra, the single narrative of the future. And so whenever we have uh, the attempt at a discussion, you have the foreign minister or you have whoever is involved with it, the interviewer has to insist on the uh, Western narrative, which was that Russia uh, invaded innocent Ukraine in an aggressive aggression without provocation and illegally. Now, that just robs everything of its context. It just sort of tries to isolate it and try and use it as a, as a, as a narrative. Um, but uh, when you do that, then you can't engage in a proper discussion uh, with the other side. You can't listen because you're always having to put forward and insist that this is the narrative. This is the truth, the one truth that exists. Switching over to uh, Israel uh, and Gaza, uh, is the United States preparing to become involved in a wider war? Uh, no, I think I am should say that, of course, the United States is doing whatever it can to stop it becoming a wider war because the Washington Post tells us that that's what's happening. And it's telling us very clearly that Biden has instructed his people um, to act to stop the war spreading, particularly to, to Lebanon. However, it's quite clear that this is a story that has been leaked and been leaked and put on the front page of the Washington Post. And so one has to be skeptical and ask why. Because uh, what we see is that the provocations continue, um, both um, from Israel, but also from America. It was only a few days ago that the United States chose to assassinate the head of what they call a militia in Iraq, the head of the Kitaib, um, the leader of it. But this militia, so-called, is actually an integral part of the armed forces of Ukraine. It was an attack on the um, Ukrainian um, state. And of course, Ukraine has now reacted. It's been firing a you're ballistic saying, You're missile. saying Ukraine. Do you mean Iran? Uh, no, uh, I sorry, not Ukraine. I mean Iraq, sorry. It, it is the militia of Iraq. Very sorry for that. Right. Supposedly our ally, they have asked us to leave the country. We yes. have at least three bases there, and now yes. we're assassinating someone on their property, some some yes. uh, some alliance we have there. What what are we uh, doing? Uh, I mean, I underlined that you know that this man was part, is part, if you like, of the official armed forces uh, of Iraq. It's not just some, you know, Iran-linked militia. So why did the United States feel the need to do this? I mean, because quite clearly, you know, what's happening in Iraq is a reflection of what's happening in Gaza. I mean, the problem, the illnesses in Gaza. I mean, the symptom is in Iraq. You're not going to, if you like, extinguish it by adding or, or heating up, if you like, the fever in Iraq because of what's happening in Gaza. Right. So why, why, why is the United States doing this in this case? And I think, uh, I'm, I regret to say that when I said at the beginning that I think 
the U United States is trying to stop the war. I'm not sure they are. And I'm not sure that Biden wants it. He has a long, long history of complete support um, for the United States and no ability to, if you like, entertain the narrative of the other or to have any sympathy or empathy for Palestinians or Arabs as a whole. Uh, and he has been very clear. I mean, there's a, a long article detailing all about it, which you probably read in, in Mother Jones, which explains his history very um, at great detail. And wow. I think what it, we're seeing is people trying to inoculate themselves. Everyone knows it's likely that the wider war is going to happen. But no one wants to be responsible for having triggered it. Uh, Hezbollah doesn't want to. Iran doesn't want to. Iraq doesn't want to. Um, and I think also um, the White House does not want to be seen, if you like, if there is a war between Israel and Hezbollah. It does not want to be seen to giving that unconditional support as it did in Gaza. So it's inoculating itself by leaking these sort of stories saying, oh, we're working so hard to stop it. But at the same time, I mean, even after this, just on Thursday, we had Senator Lindsey Graham going and seeing uh, Biden and the Biden family. What was his message? Was his message to pull back of course, uh, from it? Of course not. And did he check in with the White House before going and talk to Biden or someone in the White House before going? That's usually what happens in the United States, in my experience, that people, before they go on a sensitive visit like that, will check in with, uh, with the White House or at least the State Department. But I don't think that. And so we have today, even today, the defense minister saying, you know, the hourglass is about to turn on on a We've given them time. We've given Hezbollah time to come to a negotiated settlement. It's it's the hourglass is to to is going to turn over. We there's no more time left, and we're going to take military action. So um, uh, I think whereas the official White House uh, line is probably to say we're doing all we can to prevent this, I think that quietly um, Biden Joe Biden is going to do nothing that holds back Israel. If this is what Israel decides to do, because he knows they're in difficulties, many things are going wrong. There's lots of controversy. There's quarreling within the cabinet. There's been the ICGA. There's been Hamas. I mean, they failed in, in Gaza completely. They need a diversion. They need something. And the people really are looking I mean, because there's a great trauma, I think, in Israel. We have to recognize that. People feel the great trauma from their perspective. You know, Hamas exploded out of Gaza and started killing Israelis. And their answer to that is, well, we have to end this problem. We have to annihilate uh, Gaza. And there is a sort of a need for some sort of catharsis of war to, if you like, to satisfy how people in in Israel seem to be feeling at this moment. I mean, everyone has a, 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 a sort of a, a great anger and passion about what has happened and doesn't see any prospect of, of having any relationship with Palestinians for the future. And so, you know, politicians in trouble, governments in trouble, 
uh, often resort to a war to try and sort of bring back national unity, to bring back some sort of pride in the state. Uh, and this is what Netanyahu is doing. Look, Netanyahu is not a perfect person by, by any means, but I mean, he's not unrepresentative of, of, of an ethos that is gripping Israel, a dangerous, worrying ethos. That uh, can lead to something very bad. Add to all of this the uh, president's electoral, uh, President Biden's electoral woes. Here's um, cut number one, Chris. Here's um, Secretary Blinken over the weekend uh, warning that the Israel and Hamas war could metastasize. This is a conflict that could easily metastasize, causing even more insecurity and even more suffering. I will also raise the imperative of doing more to prevent civilian casualties. Far too many Palestinians, innocent Palestinians, have already been killed. But I think it's also very, very important that to the extent operations continue, they be designed around protecting civilians and around getting humanitarian assistance to people who need it, not the other way around. Now here, number four, uh, Chris, here it's the Prime Minister Netanyahu thumbing his nose at that. We must not stop the war until we complete all its objectives. The elimination of Hamas, the return of all our hostages, and the promise that Gaza won't pose a threat to Israel anymore. I am saying this to our enemies and to our friends. This is our responsibility and this is the commitment of us all. Hasn't he failed to stop Hamas? Isn't that obvious? And hasn't he lost the PR war? Well, all of that, but more. Because effectively, um, what Hezbollah has done in the north is to drive all the residents out of the north. It's it created a no-go zone across the northern part of Israel. And the residents have all had to fly and are accommodated in a hotel around the Dead Sea. Uh, and so um, uh, that is a major problem, which is why the war with um, Lebanon is very possible, because he needs to push Hezbollah back so that those people can return to their homes. Otherwise, you have people who are, who, who've abandoned the area near Gaza and the people who are out of the no-go zone in the north, and the West Bank is on a knife edge. So all these things are coming together. It's a, it's a trauma for the, for the government. And as I say, you know, perhaps military action would provide a catharsis or is believed to provide a catharsis. It could also provide a disaster. But, you know, when you're in a heady mood and you're in, a, in an emotional state, it's often the sort of sense of let us have action, let us move and do something that breaks, if you like, our situation and changes and inverts it. Do you think that uh, there's a realistic probability that the war in Gaza will metastasize and will extend uh, to a regional war, that Prime Minister Netanyahu will goad his adversaries into doing this so as to bring the United States physically present there in his and Israel's defense? Yes, I think that's uh, precisely um, what has happened. Um, as I say, you know, Gaza is far from finished uh, and Israel has had to withdraw because it needs its troops up in the north uh, facing Lebanon and because some of the reserves have 
have been there for too long. So it's moving out. It doesn't mean it's finished. They're going to continue bombing Gaza um, in the attempt to sort of make it again unlivable from the perspective of the cabinet uh, ministers. But uh, as I say, uh, all of these things are, are going to lead to, if you like, measures and all of these things are continuing, whether it's even if we're talking about Yemen, whether it's about um, the North or Iraq. Iraq, I was, was saying to you, um, in response to that assassination by the United States, not by Israel, has started firing ballistic missiles into the port at Haifa. And now it seems that Haifa is not going to be able to receive um, vessels uh, at that port. So the war is, is anyway widening. The question is, when does it move to a new phase? Right. And we don't know when it moves to a new wider phase, but it may well be. Who has the shortish uh, attention span in this? And I would argue that Iran can last out, can wait, ignore the assassination of Mousawi, a very senior Iranian official. Um, Hezbollah has strategic patience. Um, but the position in Israel is the government is in deep, deep trouble and needs a diversion, needs something that can provide some sort of catharsis to all the reversals that it's been experiencing in all of the areas surrounding it. Uh, over the weekend, according to the Financial Times, there was a shouting match and a screaming mm. and yelling in the Israeli mm. cabinet uh, over the wish for some uh, cabinet members to have the IDF, the military, investigate the origins of October 7th. <clears throat> I mean, by the American system, it's inconceivable that the military would investigate the president, but apparently in Israel... There are forces in the military that want to investigate <clears throat> why some of them look the other way and whether Prime Minister Netanyahu was asleep at the switch. Do you have a take on this? Yes. I, I mean, this was um, really an attempted coup d'etat to, to, uh, to remove the government. There are certain things that are completely impossible to to do and one of the things was that netanyahu and the government have said we will discuss what went wrong after the war to bring it up now was quite clearly targeted at netanyahu it was clearly uh, an effort um, to try and bring the responsibility and put it on his shoulders even now during this time in order to force him uh, to go and similarly, um, there were other actions that, uh, that were taken um, that have uh, uh, left um, the, the, not only just the insistence of that, but the insistence uh, on the, I, the ICW being treated and dealt with, and others have made it very difficult. And quite clearly, there is an attempt to remove the government. The only problem is that Israel is divided right down the middle on, on the question of, of politics and uh, in, in terms of the, the party politics. But in terms of the program of the government, it's moved solidly to the right, far to the right, and supports most of the propositions that the cabinet is making, the propositions by people like Ben Gavir and Smotrich. So, yes, 
it was certainly an attempt to undermine and upset the government. Again, another reason why we, why the government may believe that it needs as soon as possible uh, the catharsis of a war with Hezbollah, even if it ends up by being um, catastrophe. Alistair, always a pleasure, <clears throat> my dear friend. Thank you very much for your insight. Thank you so much, of course, for uh, joining us. We'll see you again next week. My pleasure. Thank you. All, all the best. Thanks. Coming up, as usual, uh, on Monday at 10 o'clock Eastern, Ray McGovern, and at 11 o'clock Eastern, Larry Johnson, Justin Napolitano for Judging Freedom.